0: This is the hour of
1: doom and bloom. That's
0: right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, a rampart of righteousness in a ridiculous world. Yeah, ridiculous. (laughs) I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of the award winning survival website, doomandbloom.net. And this is my wonderful co host.
1: Amy Alton, also known as Nurse Amy. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife.
0: I'm purveyor of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net, plus, co author of the 2022 Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, the fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, the essential guide for when help is not on the way. She's so smart that Jeopardy has to audition to play her. <laughs> it's true. It's true. She's How do
1: you come up with these Sharp things? as a knife. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> On this show, you're going to get the conventional medical wisdom, but you're also going to get the unconventional medical wisdom and absolutely free some random ratings from an unhinged old man chained (laughs) to the microwave. (laughs) I'm kidding. It's me. I'm not chained to anything, but our love for. Not yet. (laughs) But my love for our country. Yes. That's right.
1: That's true. Me too.
0: You want to hear all this great stuff? Well,. You're gonna to have to listen to
1: this. I'll say it as fast as I can. All information and opinions voiced on this Vriam Medicine podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post apocalyptic settings. Wow. We strongly urge our <laughs> <you> interrupted me. <laughs> we strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care wherever and whenever it is available.
0: Or don't. It's not like there's a formula shortage or elementary uh, schools are being shot up or uh. There hasn't been a world war since well we're tomorrow. Have, we
1: have a <laughs> grain shortage that's going to hit us,
0: right? Yeah, that's right. So because
1: Ukraine and Russia apparently were huge grain, grain suppliers yes. for the world. Yep, not just for their area or that side of the world for the world. The world. <laughs> that's scary.
0: So that's the deal, guys. What are you going to do when hospitals are out of commission when there's nowhere else to turn? I'm saying I should say if, but I know if a hopefully, lot of people believe hopefully when. Not. Where does the buck stop then? Don't look now, but I see your family, friends, and neighbors pointing at you right now behind your back. So you better get off your duff and learn some stuff. Maybe get some medical supplies. Amy, you know where to get some?
1: I do. <laughs> As a matter of fact, Doom and Bloom, or store.doomandbloom.net. Right. Doomandbloom.net is the education, and store.doomandbloom.net is the supplies All right. and education. Sounds great.
0: Okay, let's see what we got here. Oh, you'll like this. A bill entered in California's state legislature has gone where President Biden's disinformation bureau couldn't. Bill AB-2098 gives power to the state's medical board to investigate and punish doctors whose advice and treatment regarding COVID-19 varies from the perceived applicable standard of care. The medical establishment now has disinformation authority apparently over others who dare to voice alternative opinions to their patients or even on social media. Consequences can be harsh, including taking away a medical license. Doctors on the West Coast should be dismayed, but not surprised by AB-2098. California's attempt to rein in misinformation is part of Big Brother's Ministry of Truth, but it goes against everything a young physician should be taught in medical school. It's important to teach the next medical generation to be objective, certainly in regards to the current conventional wisdom. Even more importantly, each medical generation should question, seriously question, prevailing thought whenever appropriate. If medical professionals didn't have this freedom in the past, medical progress wouldn't have moved at the pace needed to meet today's challenges. California is making an effort to cancel a medical professional's right to think freely by creating a censor. Worse than that, it's a censor with the power to ruin careers. If today's practicing physicians on the West Coast fail to follow conventional dogma, they'll suffer the penalty. In activist communities, of which there are plenty in California, dozens of complaints are going to be entered against perfectly competent and caring practitioners who just failed to toe the line. Defending themselves against such complaints will be risky for young doctors, many of whom have spouses and young children to support. They're going to feel forced to follow the straight and very narrow path even if that path isn't in their patient's best interest. At present, Bill AB-2098 refers specifically to advice and treatment relating to COVID-19. But a bill can be easily amended to include another medical issue, then another, and another. Eventually, there will be an infallible set of standards that cannot be violated. If a medical dictionary has a definition for slippery slope, well, this is it. The bill is meant to protect the community against dangerous doctors. And yes, some doctors may be incompetent, even negligent. Some may have opinions that aren't supported by hard data. Others may offer questionable options as a cure-all. No drug or procedure cures everything. And sweeping medical claims should always be viewed with a skeptical eye by doctors and by ordinary citizens. A medical board should scrutinize practitioners who make wild claims and take action when necessary to keep patients safe. What's going on in California, however, is different. AB 2098, that's going to have implications that are far-reaching enough to set a precedent for other state and national organizations. Before long, there'll be one way to deal with a particular health issue and one way only. If the treatment accepted by the medical establishment doesn't work, well, what should a doctor do? Should they just shrug and walk away? Impossible. The steamroller of censorship has already started. The Federation of State Medical Boards, a national organization, has passed a misinformation policy of their own. They recommend that its members crack down on errant physicians. The CEO of the organization has been quoted in the LA Times as saying, It's incumbent upon physicians to keep up with what's permissible, what's approved, what's authorized, and what's not. Looks like this board... ...wants to exert an iron fist authority over the entire country's physicians. Many media outlets like the LA Times would actually welcome a 1984-style medical ministry of truth, but I don't. I'm a retired physician who writes about strategies that might save lives in long-term disasters. In these situations, the caregiver's options are limited due to a lack of a functioning medical infrastructure. So you have to be flexible and think outside the box. This means crossing into uncharted territory sometimes. Territory that's off-limits, at least to the medical powers that be. Something, however, is better than nothing. Theodore Roosevelt once said, Do what you can with what you have where you are. I wonder what the medical board in California would say about that. When the San Andreas Fault unleashes the big one one day, will a doctor be reprimanded if all they had to splint a broken leg was a couple of sticks and a t-shirt? Listen, there's more than one way to skin a cat. There might, surprise, even be more than one way to treat an illness. Developing different ways to handle infections, injuries, and chronic illness is the way medicine moves forward. With COVID, that might mean letting physicians prescribe medicines that are politically out of favor, like, say, ivermectin, which, by the way, has a lot of hard data going for it. Heart disease, cancer, diabetes, thyroid disease, what if we didn't allow new ways of diagnosis and treatment? We'd be stuck in a previous medical era, and lives, believe me, would be lost. Discouraging free thought in our healthcare providers is a mistake. California makes mistakes on policy regularly, but this is the kind that one day down the road may cost its citizens dearly. And that's your rant for today. And now, a word from our sponsor. A plastic bag. Plastic bags are versatile. Put your ham sandwich in it, your favorite recreational drugs, or put one over your head and see the world in an entirely different way. Paint it red, slap a biohazard sticker on it, and use it to store your leftover shipment of Pentagon anthrax. Plastic bags! Available in the trillions at trash dumps everywhere.
1: Hey, Nurse Amy here. I'm going to talk about peppermint today. It's actually one of the most popular essential oils. I'm not sure if you guys knew that. It's actually a hybrid that originated naturally from two types of mint plants, water mint and spearmint. The smell you know from things like candles and soap come from the concentrated oil, which is the essential oil, inside the plant. Peppermint actually dates back at least to 1500 BC. Many experts believe that the ancient people who began cultivating the leaf were using it for foods and herbal remedies, of course, like we do. Peppermint actually gets its its name from Greek mythology. And as legend goes, the god Hades was having an affair with a nymph named Minthe. When Hades' wife found out about his infidelity, she turned Minthe into a common plant that grew like a weed. Hades altered the curse, though. He left her as a weed, but gave her a sweet, calming scent to remind others of her presence as they walked over her. Archaeologists have actually discovered 3,000-year-old dried peppermint leaves in the inner chambers of Egyptian pyramids. That's pretty crazy. The ancient Romans often used peppermint to flavor special dishes served during feasts, including it in both sauces and wine. The decorative plant was also commonly presented on dining room tables. Noblemen were known to braid its long stems into festive crowns and wear them. Ancient Hebrews covered the floors of synagogues with mint on special occasions because of its pleasant and calming scent. So, how do we use peppermint? You can use peppermint leaf through tea capsules or as an extract. Peppermint oil comes in capsules and liquids. If you apply it to to your skin or take it by mouth, since it's highly concentrated... Be sure to dilute it and only use a few drops at a time. It can be toxic if you take too much of the oil at once. You can use it for a number of purposes. To soothe an upset stomach, that's a really common ingredient in a lot of upset stomach medicine. In the GI tract, it prevents smooth muscles in the gut from contracting, which could relieve tummy spasms. Other research shows it also helps nausea and vomiting from chemotherapy. A few studies have shown peppermint and other herbal meds can ease stomach pain in kids, but we will need to know more before doctors recommend it. To treat IBS, studies suggest that coated peppermint oil capsules can ease side effects of irritable bowel syndrome like gas, stomach pain, constipation, and even diarrhea. A review of nine studies in 926 people with irritable bowel syndrome, also known as IBS, treated with peppermint oil for at least two weeks, concluded that peppermint provided significantly better relief than a placebo. It may also help with headaches. The active ingredient in peppermint is menthol. Some studies show it can lessen the pain of migraine headaches. In one small trial of 35 people who had migraines, peppermint oil was applied to the forehead and temples, which significantly reduced pain after two hours compared with placebo oil. It may also reduce other symptoms with light sensitivity when you're having a migraine, nausea, and vomiting. The menthol and peppermint oil increases blood flow and provides a cooling sensation, possibly easing the pain. A few studies suggest that placing a peppermint oil solution on your forehead and temples can also help take away tension headaches. One thing I personally have done is taken a little bit of peppermint oil put it on a washcloth, wet the washcloth, and then put ice underneath the washcloth. So when you apply it to your forehead or your temples, you get not only the peppermint sensation, but you also get the cooling from the ice. And I really feel that helps in my migraines. You also might want to try that additionally behind the neck at the same time. One that shouldn't come as a surprise as a use for peppermint is to kill mouth germs. Not only does the flavor of peppermint freshen your breath, But its antibacterial properties may also help get rid of the source of the smell, germs. It's believed to keep bacteria from forming a film on your teeth and promote dental health. That's why it's probably in a lot of toothpaste also. To ease stuffy sinuses like I have right now, peppermint's antimicrobial powers may help you fight off the common cold or the infected mucus that sets up shop in your sinuses as a result. The menthol can also make you feel like You can breathe a little easier through your nose. If you want to feel more awake during the day, peppermint oil just might do the trick. Experts aren't quite sure what happens to your body when you smell peppermint, but it may ease sleepiness during waking hours. Peppermint doesn't seem to affect the amount of blood loss during a period, but the menthol in peppermint can ease the intensity and shorten the length of period pain in some women. Scientists tested peppermint oil on bacteria like E. coli, Listeria, and Salmonella. They actually found that it can stop all three from growing and help fight foodborne bacterial infections. It can also kill Staphylococcus aureus, a bacteria that causes skin infections, pneumonia, meningitis, and more. Peppermint can help you enjoy the outdoors more when it comes to allergy season and sneezing. <laughs> it has a compound called acid that can lower your body's histamine reaction this may mean fewer symptoms such as an irritated stuffy nose sneezing and red itchy eyes some evidence even exists that peppermint may sharpen your focus in a small study capsules of peppermint oil helped people process problems longer without getting mentally tired the herb sharp smell may boost your memory and keep you extra alert well this is nurse amy thanks for listening to my little peppermint oil talk Have a great day.
0: And there she goes. Things at our warehouse have been so busy that she's actually had to go on in to pack bags herself. You actually might get a medical kit packed by Nurse Amy herself. Hey, any disaster can put your people at risk for injury. Many of those injuries cause bleeding, and depending on the area of damage, a few can be life threatening. In survival, a lot of activities involve the use of sharp objects. And so today I want to discuss how to deal with hemorrhage from knife wounds. You can define a classic stab wound as a laceration where the puncture on the skin is smaller than the depth of penetration in the body. This is in contrast to a slash injury, which is generally longer on the skin than it is deep. Stab wounds tend to enter in a line along the long axis of the knife, whereas slashes don't. They sort of go perpendicular. Now, these Types of wounds are a type of penetrating trauma, which is further divided into two types perforating and non perforating. A perforating wound is one in which the object causing the damage goes in one side of the body and then exits through the other side. A wound from a 223 round or a NATO 556 would be a good example of perforating trauma. Stab wounds are a good example of a non perforating wound. The projectile causing the damage enters the body and either stays there or exits where it entered. There are some sharp instruments that possibly could perforate all the way, a crossbow bolt, for example, or maybe a spearhead, but let's assume these are going to be less common than knife wounds, even in a survival setting. Bullets and other high speed projectiles cause damage not only from the act of penetration, but also the shock wave produced as the bullet passes through the body at high speed. Low speed projectiles, such as knives, don't produce much of a shock wave, so your concerns are mostly related to the area of entry and the structures that are located directly in the path of the offending instrument. With stab wounds, blood loss is going to be the major issue. Your immediate action upon encountering a victim with a wound from a sharp instrument, that may save their life. The heart takes less than one minute to pump blood to the entire body. If the circulatory system is breached, arterial blood loss can become life-threatening pretty quickly. An average-sized adult male has about 9 to 10 pints about five liters, of blood in their body. Athletes and those living at very high altitudes may have more. You can't really afford to lose more than, let's say, 40% of your total blood volume without needing major resuscitation. To get an idea of how much blood this is, empty a 2-liter bottle of any liquid on the floor. It's a real eye-opener. Imagine how much of your supply bandages might be expended from just one major bleed. If you're attending to an actively bleeding wound from a sharp object, you're going to need a level head and some quick action. In normal times, of course, you want to contact emergency services immediately. In the meantime, you would follow these steps. You would assess the safety of the situation first. Make sure there's no active threat. There's nobody running around with a knife or nobody that's shooting people, things like that. makes no sense for you to become the next casualty. If you have gloves, you should put them on. Your hands are full of bacteria and you'll reduce the risk of infection by doing so. If no gloves are available, any barrier, or at least hand sanitizers maybe, might be helpful if you have to touch the wound with bare hands. Let's face it though, you might not have the time to do all this stuff if the bleeding is that heavy. Verify the victim's breathing and mental status. Clear the airways if obstructed. You can do this while you're examining the wound itself. You want to determine if the person's alert enough to follow commands. Now, assuming you're not in a combat setting, you would remove clothing to fully expose the wound and identify other injuries. Make sure you have a bandage scissors or an EMT shears in your medical pack. Now, if you are in a situation where you're under fire, let's say, or there's somebody that is going to threaten you with a knife, you want to try to abolish that threat if at all possible. Then what you're going to need to do is apply pressure on the wound with some type of dressing, even your shirt if that's all you have. Most non-arterial bleeding will stop with firm direct pressure on the wound. If the sharp object is still in place in in the victim and help is on the way, you want to place pressure down on either side towards the blade to prevent it from slipping out the knife may actually be providing pressure on damaged vessels and slowing down the bleeding. You want to stabilize the wound with the weapon in place with dressings, and you can see ways to do that in some of our videos. Now, if one dressing doesn't work and you don't have specialized blood clotting materials called hemostatic dressings, you want to place additional dressings on top of the first. So you just, you not don't, don't, don't take out the first one. You're just going to keep placing dressings on top of the first. So that's going to be different. If you do have a hemostatic dressing, I'll talk about that in a minute. You want to elevate the feet above the level of the heart and head. And that's called the shock position to increase blood flow to the brain and, and to the heart. If the wound is to the abdomen, however, you want to bend the knees instead. If the wound's in an extremity, you want to lift the injured extremity above the level of the heart. You want to make it more difficult to pump blood out of the body. This may work or it may not. If direct pressure fails, you want to apply a tourniquet to stop the bleeding. Our experience in Iraq and Afghanistan shows that tourniquets save lives in cases of severe or arterial hemorrhage. As a matter of fact, if the bleeding is obviously arterial, bright red blood spurting out of the wound, using a tourniquet should be your first course of action. If you're transporting a patient to a modern medical facility, make sure you mark a T on the victim's forehead if they have a tourniquet, or otherwise notify emergency personnel of the location and the length of time that the tourniquet's been in place. I mentioned hemostatics earlier. In cases of heavy bleeding, the use of special blood clotting materials such as Quick Clot, C-Lox, or Chitosam, they're lifesavers. We put these products in all our medical packs, even the smaller individual first aid kits at store.doomandbloom.net. In this case, you would remove the blood-soaked bandages, which is the opposite of what you do if you don't have hemostatic dressings. Place a hemostatic gauze directly on the bleeding vessel, and then apply direct pressure, firm direct pressure, for three full minutes. You want to secure everything with a pressure dressing, of which there are various on the markets. The Israeli battle dressing is known as the emergency bandage in the United States, and it can apply up to 30 pounds of pressure if it's used properly. You want to keep the victim warm. Now, that's important. You want to throw a mylar blanket or any other cover over them. If help's coming, keep them as still and calm as possible to prevent further bleeding. You want to monitor breathing, pulses, mental status, and an unconscious victim should be placed, if possible, in the recovery position, something else that we've talked about in previous videos and articles. This is going to, among other things, allow fluid to drain from airways and help them breathe. Now, let's say you place the tourniquet successfully and there's no help coming ever. You're the end of the line when it comes to medical care for this victim. If a tourniquet is on, should you loosen it from time to time? You may be tempted to do this, but honestly, it can cause further bleeding. You shouldn't do that. That doesn't mean you can leave the victim. Now you're now your patient with a tourniquet on or a knife sticking out of them forever, you want to carefully transport them to a more controlled setting where you have the bulk of your medical supplies and remove the knife. Yes, I said remove the knife. Remember, there's no hospital, no trauma surgeon, there's just you. You may have to place a second tourniquet above the first one if bleeding returns. Your goal is to transition the patient from the tourniquet within, say, maybe two hours or so to a hemostatic gauze and a pressure bandage, things that you should have in your medical supplies, and you'll find them at our store. Once the bleeding's under control, you want to clean the wound thoroughly and dress it. Remove hemostatic materials in about 24 hours, or or earlier if you can, Wound closure may be an option in some cases, but most backcountry stab wounds are going to be dirty and they probably should be left open. You'll find daily wound care described in other articles on our website. All of the above may not be necessary if you practice preventative measures. In other words, insist your people wear hand and eye protection when using sharp instruments and don't run with scissors. With some foresight, you may be able to avoid a mishap that could turn into a tragedy. Hey, here's a segment of our show where I take questions posed to me in the past, often on our friend Jack Spirko's Survival Podcast. If you have questions you'd like to hear me address on the podcast, send us an email at drbonespodcast at AOL.com. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net. Now with close to a thousand articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author, along with my lovely wife, Nurse Amy, of the 700-page Survival Medicine Handbook, the essential guide for when medical help is not on the way, plus an entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Michael from Ireland, who writes, Hi, I'm looking for advice on preventing leg cramps in my legs, back of the thigh, and less frequently back of the lower leg, which I sometimes get when I get out of bed after sleep. It can be very painful, and sometimes can sort of lock up and be difficult to straighten. It can happen to either leg a few times each month. Michael in Ireland. Michael, anyone who's ever woken up with a leg cramp knows how painful it can be. Leg cramps at night typically involve the calf muscles, occasionally the back of the thigh. Yet, it's possible to get these cramps In the feet as well, some people get them just about anywhere in the legs. In most cases, however, such cramps are harmless, can be relieved, or prevented with some simple stretching exercises done regularly. Talk about that in a minute. However, if it's a persistent problem like yours and interfere with your sleep, it may represent other issues. Now, this is particularly true if you are having muscle weakness, swelling, numbness, or pain uh, that lingers or continues to come back with those cramps. That is a possible issue that should be evaluated further. Although the risk of getting night leg cramps increases with age is something we can't do very much about, sometimes even your physician can't pinpoint the cause of why all this is happening. Dehydration, prolonged sitting, or not getting enough of certain substances like potassium, calcium, or magnesium in your diet can be associated with leg cramps, and so can certain medications including diuretics, beta blockers, other blood pressure medicines. These are sometimes the cause of people getting leg cramps. Sometimes it could be related to another underlying condition, something like an underactive thyroid, that's called hypothyroidism, or a problem with the nearby parathyroid gland. Diabetes, other conditions like that could disrupt your metabolism and also cause leg cramps. Night leg cramps are sometimes confused with something called restless leg syndrome. And with restless leg syndrome, you feel this throbbing, pulling, or other unpleasant sensations in your legs. You have an uncontrollable urge to move your lower limbs. These symptoms primarily occur at night or when at rest. However, muscle pain is less common with restless leg syndrome than it is with leg cramps. So it depends on how much pain you're having. Another issue is swelling in your legs, and that can be caused by excess fluid accumulation. That's called edema, and that may feel like leg cramps as well. Besides stretching exercises, try gently rubbing a cramped muscle to help it relax. For our calf cramps, try standing up, putting your weight on the leg in question, and slightly bending your knee. If you're in too much pain to stand up, straighten your leg and flex the top of your foot towards your head. Applying cold or heat can also offer some relief. To relax, tense muscles, apply ice or a cold pack directly to the area where you feel cramping. Applying heat with a warm towel or a heating pad or by taking a hot bath or shower can also make you feel better by reducing muscle pain or tenderness. I seem to do better with heat myself. Prevention is possible. Staying hydrated, drinking water and other fluids with electrolytes like potassium others throughout the day that may help you avoid becoming dehydrated. It can also help your muscles contract and relax more easily. It's especially important to replenish your fluids when engaging in physical activity and to continue drinking water and other liquids after being active. Doing like exercise besides, besides stretching, riding a stationary bike for a few minutes before bedtime, that sometimes can help prevent cramps while you're sleeping. Now, choosing the right shoes, wearing shoes that have very poor support, that can cause leg cramps, and interestingly enough, untucking the covers to your bed. If you loosen or untuck the bed sheet and other covers at the foot of your bed before going to sleep, that may prevent leg cramps. Of course, if leg cramps are interfering with your sleep, you're having some of the things I mentioned, muscle weakness, swelling, numbness, or pain that lingers or continue, continues to come back, it's worth a trip to the doctor to get to the bottom of it. Well, that's all the time we have. You've been listening to the Survival Medicine Podcast. For Amy Alton, I'm Joe Alton, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies medical supplies and lots of other good stuff contact us send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website see you next week
1: Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did.